Welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable, a running podcast where we shake out and purposely go off track on any and everything related to our favorite hobby. Get ready to get uncomfortable along with our guests, because growth only happens outside of your comfort zone. Here are your hosts, Ines Babea, Jamie Chen, and Nathan Schiller. I'm Nathan Schiller. Hi, I'm Jamie Chen. Hola, I'm Ines Bebea, and welcome to Let's Get Uncomfortable. Today, we welcome our first guest overseas, all the way from Berlin, one of the co-founders of Wave Run Collective. Gwen has shown crew love since she's no stranger to the scene here in New York City, so I'd like to say hello again. Hi everyone, my name is Nguyen Thich and thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited for this. Welcome Huyen. As we continue celebrating Women's History Month, we're going to take a look at the impact of women in the Olympics. The modern Olympics were started in 1896, but women were not allowed to participate until the Paris Games in 1900. Out of the 997 athletes, only 22 were women. In the United States, Participation by women was helped by Title IX, the legislation that made discrimination in sports on the basis of gender illegal on June 23, 1972. But it was finally at the 2012 London Olympics that we witnessed the boom of women in sports. For Team USA, there were 269 women and 261 men participating at the games. As we keep our fingers crossed to the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, do you have any favorite Olympic sports? And did you have access to sports while growing up? Wow, what an intense question to start with. <laughs> um, yeah, growing up as um, an immigrant, Vietnamese German here in Germany, I was not really exposed to the Olympics. And then growing up, um, Yes, we had um, PE in school, but we didn't really have, or I didn't really have um, a club that I joined or, um, or nor was I part of any. Um, there was no coach or teacher um, reaching out to me to join a track and field club or any sports club. So yeah, and then I would say, of course, today, um, one of my favorite Olympic sports are running track and field, long distance running. Um, but I'm also very excited for like, you know, non-traditional sports like um, climbing or skateboarding and yeah. So how did you get first introduced to running? I actually took a gap year after high school and then lived with a Jewish family in New Jersey. And um, both parents, both host parents were doctors. And the host mom, she would go running one hour every day. And I was like, how do you do all this with like being a doctor and having three kids, two dogs and uh, me being an au pair? And uh, she said this was the only time for herself. And she said, you know, if I can do it, you can do it too. And I was like, nah, I can't. It's like, <laughs> I can't run for an hour. Um, so I think she would nag me for like three weeks and then I was like, okay, let's start like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And then eventually I worked myself up to, yeah, 45 and 60 minutes. And then 
yeah, later on when I um, came back to New York um, for a study abroad semester, I signed up for the New York City Half Lottery. And that was when I first, um, yeah, ran my first race, um, the New York City Half in 2015. Well, that's great. I know like every time I've run the, the New York City Half, I've been, I don't know if it was like lucky or unlucky that the, the course changed every year. The first year was like the last time that it started in the park and it went down the Westside Highway. The second year, um, it ended somewhere else. No, it was when it went to Brooklyn. Yeah, it started in Brooklyn. And then the following year, it also started in Brooklyn, but it finished differently. So I, I am happy to not ever put my name in the It is a cold that. race. That is one <laughs> race. I mean, I actually like the original course, but some people like that it started in Brooklyn. I just feel like if I want to Brooklyn, I'll do the Brooklyn half. <laughs> I, I'm <laughs> saying, then don't call it New York City half. Call it the double borough half. I'm sure we could spend all days with stories on our Brooklyn half experiences. I too have run that race. Some good ones, some bad ones. Um, but Huyen, I had a question, like going back to those first days when you first started running, given now that you're very, you know, involved in running fast, prolific, um, it's such part of your life. Did you ever think you would get here uh, or were you just like struggling to get through two miles and saying, oh, I'm never going to do this, but somehow you kept going? What was it like? Yeah, in the beginning, I think I had different motivations, um, you know, like um, I was 18, 19. Um, I was like very inspired by my host mom that I lived with. And um, I, you know, it was also like just trying to get fit and trying to stay healthy. And whereas I would have never imagined running a half or running a full or um, you know, qualifying for Boston. Um, I would have never imagined um, being exposed to such a wonderful community um, internationally mm. and having met um, all these people. I'm really grateful for the sport. So you spent a, a few years living in New York City and you ran with Nike Run Club here. What are your like memories of running in New York and what that community is like? Um, I loved, I love New York. I miss you all. I, I miss running in New York. Um, I hold the place very dear to my heart. Um, when I moved back to Germany in 2018, um, the first year I visited New York four times, you know, for Boston, for a wedding, um, for the New York City Marathon. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, incredibly diverse. Um, I felt safe running there because I felt like so many people are running on the West Side Highway in Brooklyn on the streets. Um, yeah, I really miss it. Yeah, it's so energetic. It's like so normal that people run commute too. And um, yeah, and with like all these different crews and organizations um, and you know, you were also just like inspired to like start your own, start your own project, start your own run club. Um, there's space for everyone. Yeah. Did you run with any particular groups? I did run with Black Roses NYC. Yeah. Oh, how did you, um, they're very popular here. Um, they're very well known. Um, how did you get involved? How did I get involved? Um, you know, like why then? There's so many other crews too. They're fast. 
Yeah, I actually, well, I mean, through Nike Run Club, you know, when they started out, um, I was exposed to bridge runners. Oh. And then I saw Jessie Zappo, and then I was like, wow, she's kick-ass. And um, found out that she was the co-founder of Black Roses NYC, and then um, I was really drawn to it. And um, yeah, eventually started running with them. And um, yeah, trained with them several times a week and ran, yeah, the New York City full, Boston. Actually, no, the New York City full and my first Berlin marathon with them. Yeah. Wow, Bridge Runners and Jesse Zappo, we should get them on the show. Reunion. <laughs> Thanks, Nathan. <laughs> and Black Roses, huh? <laughs> All three of them. <laughs> that's such a dad joke nathan <laughs> do you want more um Huyen, can you tell us a little bit about the berlin running scene and how it compared to the new york running scene since we are not um a berlin-based podcast and maybe our listeners would be curious what it's like over there yeah so um I mean, I don't want to idolize my time in New York, right? Because um, there were many reasons why I also left New York, but um, the running energy is such a different one in New York, especially when you're there, of course, for the New York City Marathon, that weekend is very special. Um, when I moved here, I didn't feel, I didn't see myself represent, represented. And um, a lot of, um, yeah, running clubs here are very traditional, um, white and cis male are very intimidating. And um, yeah, I didn't see as many women leaders. And um, it just made sense for me when I moved back here to start my own club. Was it hard to start your own club? Like, how do you, um, it, that's very interesting that you just start your own club. Is it something that you just post on Instagram or something and say, hey, let's get together? Yeah, so before I moved here, I connected with Daniel, uh, Daniel Marin Medina, and uh, he used to be a pacer for the Nike Run Club in New York. So before I moved to Berlin, he um, already moved from New York City to Berlin a year ahead of me. And we would, yeah, before my move, I would Skype him and be like, hey, how's the situation in Berlin? And he's like, you know, it's like, it's different, but <laughs> you should try it and it's uh, worth a shot. I mean, I'm not um, complaining about free healthcare and free education. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so when I moved here two days after my flight, um, I met up with Daniel and I was like, hey, Daniel, like you've been here for a year now. How come you, you're not running with anyone, like with any of the clubs here? And he said, you know, like they are not my, my vibe. And I was like, well, you're a queer Colombian American guy and you know I'm Vietnamese immigrant um, Vietnamese German um, how about we just start our own club you know how about we just like make our own space and create our own tables and create our own structures and invite and empower black and brown marginalized people queer people to come run with us yeah and in the beginning it was like very much like um, friends of friends you know and then eventually I think now a lot of people reach out to us through Instagram. Yeah. And Strava. <laughs> so as you and Daniel start creating this, um, this group and this space for people, 
Um, and again, Daniel, he was also a great friend while he was here and running with us and, and with um, Nike Run Club. Your group is very diverse. Is diversity a conversation in Germany in terms of work, school, the arts, sports? Is that something that happens there that is actually a discussion? So for the fact that I'm in the most international city in Germany, you know, Berlin being the Berlin being the capital city, um, it is not um, diversity and race. Racism is not um, something people implement into their structures. So I'm still in workplaces. I'm still at the university, and it's and I'm the only person of color. And my first year, even transitioning here. I was like, where is everyone? Where are all the black and brown people? Like, do we have, are they hiding? Like, I don't know. And um, yeah, it's very white. But where are they hiding or not hiding? Why is it like this in Berlin? Um, I do think uh, Berlin, you know, Berlin has different neighborhoods. And then um, I would, I mean, gentrification, is a big part of it, um, similar to New York. And, and then you have to kind of distinguish between internationals, like, you know, expats from like Australia or like England or the US, and then actually like um, migrant or immigrant Germans, um, they don't necessarily like run, you know? or feel safe to, or feel empowered to. Mm. And then, um, yeah, and then there's also the question of class, right? So I think there's like so many intersections you have to um, think of, yeah. I think that's fascinating about Berlin. Um, I mean, I knew that they did have a gentrification issue, which is I think why they enacted um, the rent regulation laws recently last year. What in your upbringing, do you feel, you know, made you become aware of diversity issues or have you always been, you know, have you always been, you know, active in social justice? Yeah, I grew up in a very small town, Southwest Germany, um, where, you know, the, the town is very white conservative and um, New York, in New York, I felt, I felt like I was expo exposed to so many different people, you know, and so many, like I met some of you here um, and my friends in New York gave me the vocabulary to speak about race and racism and injustice and um, you know words like being the model minority like words that people never taught me in school or you know colonialism like it's interesting that you brought up model minority I mean that's a big issue here with Asians is that something that exists in Germany in Berlin uh, it's a massive issue <laughs> it's a massive issue um, even like now being engaged with um, you know the Asian German diaspora I feel like sometimes um, maybe some people see me as more radical and I would say I'm not that radical, you know, when you like speak of uh, mainstream social justice movements. Um, but yeah, I think Germany has like such a 
is still grappling with its past, with its with its uh, Nazi history past. So it was it has been very easy to Germ um, to yeah to Germans and Germany to say, oh, we don't have racism. You know, we dealt with our past. Like we dealt with like what happened to the Jewish people, and we dealt with like Nazi uh, Germany. But so there's no racism here anymore. Well, when you were growing up, uh, you said you didn't have a vocabulary to speak about these issues until you came to New York, but were you thinking about them? Like, did you see, you know, white supremacist Nazi um, modes of thinking or expressions in a white conservative town in, in Germany? And what was that like? Or what do you remember? Yeah. Um, so it's very much uh, it does is it's very much the conversation here right now as well, right? Like people speak about um, racism and race and um, in terms of like Nazi extremist extreme people or like radical right wing people, but it's like can we actually speak about we are being taught how to be racist and that like it's actually like in the middle of the population and everyone can be racist. Um, and so while I didn't um, experience, you know, Nazi hate um, growing up, I did experience, um, yeah, racism in terms of, um, for example, in elementary school, how they structured in Germany is they put you after fourth grade, they can put you in three different levels of schools and the highest being, um, you know, if they recommend you to go to the highest level of school, you can like finish a high school degree. If you get recommendation to go in the middle, um, yeah, level of school, you can only finish up until 10th grade. And I was actually recommended um, to go to the lowest level of schools to only finish up to ninth grade. So um, growing up, my teachers were like, you're not going to finish university. You're not going to study. So this is what I had experienced. So then how did you end up finishing? You know, you, you went to, you came to New York, you did a gap year, you got this experience, then you went back and, you know, got a college degree. How, how does, what happens to people when they're like, these roadblocks already set for them very early on? Like, what, what does that population then work? Like, where do they end up working? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of heavy to me and it's pretty emotional. Um, I'm glad I have the safer space with you all to talk about this. Um, I think what I did when I was eight or nine years old, of course, not having the language for it, I just told my parents I'm being treated unfairly at school. Um, please do not put me into the lowest level of school. Like I do want to, I want to prove myself. I want to achieve something. And this at eight or nine years old, right? And then, so both my parents supported me also not being able to, um, you know, speak fluent German. And then after having finished 10th grade, um, you usually then uh, do a traineeship. You don't go to college, but I was, I was sure I can like finish a high school degree and then go to college. Yeah. And of course, here and there you have like, um, you know, you have um, empowering teachers as well. So now we are 
fast forward to like 2020 and the pandemic is happening and people are, for their own racist their stupidity are accusing people of Asian descent that the disease is their fault. And you see language and attacks across the globe against Asian people. And then now you start a website that is called I Am Not a Virus, where people can document their own experiences. Why did you want to do this? So one of my colleagues, um, she's a UX designer and she's a Japanese Taiwanese and um, she actually applied for um, a hackathon. It's basically a marathon over the weekend where you know, a bunch of hackers and tech people come together to like work on an idea and try to apply for funding. Um, she, yeah, her project didn't even get into the top 20, you know, not even into, no, it was the top 200. And then looking into the structures, right? Like who is the jury? Like who's making the decisions? Um, who's giving away these funding and prices? Um, there was there was not one person of color, um, and she yeah she was left alone with this project. And um, after her mom um, in a small town experienced um, that people were chasing down her mom, and um, it came to a violent attack. And um, you know, there was like a newspaper organization that reached out to her and was like, hey, can we actually interview your mom? And then she was like, yeah, sure. Like I can put you in touch with my mom. And then this news organization was like, oh, she doesn't speak fluent German. We, we're not gonna interview her anymore. So my friend was like, no, we actually need this platform. I need this platform to, to um, come to being, to come to, life um, so that people who have don't who not who don't have reach or an audience or who are not on Twitter or Instagram can like document their experiences so um, yeah a friend of ours um, connected me to her and I was like hey I'm here to support um, if you need help um, let's just do it by ourselves even without funding so this was last year yeah March April and um, we are a team of five people and um, yeah, programmers, developers um, working on this um, site. Well, yeah. I think that's pretty powerful. It's programmers and developers. I think that's a really good weapon. I find it interesting that you're Viet German and I've, I've never really thought about the Asian population in Germany, but what is the Asian population like? Um, do they live mixed in like, if you recall in New York City, there are some segregated populations where Chinese will live in one community, the Koreans live in their own community, um, you know, Indians live in their own community. So what are the communities in Berlin like? Yeah, I would say there's um, a large um, Vietnamese, Korean, Chinese population in Germany. And um, sadly, we don't have Chinatowns or Korea towns mm. or Vietnamese towns. Um, yeah, and so it's a little bit spread out, right? Because um, what I can say from um, the Vietnamese migration, let's say, is um, there are on one side um, boat people who have been rescued by um, Germans after the Vietnam, after the American war in Vietnam. 
and um, on the other hand you have um, guest workers and contract workers who came from Vietnam to help rebuild Germany um, and then in terms of like um, the history history of racism towards Asian people in Germany, um, it has been happening, you know, like um, Nazis attacking a refugee home, an immigrant home where two Vietnamese young boys were killed too, you know, so this was in 1992, you know, so this is like, there's a lineage of um, racist crimes against um, Asian people here. And what sort of discussions do you have about that when tragic and horrific things happen like that to your community? Um, well, Germany is very good with denial. <laughs> um, you know, last weekend when I spoke to Ines, um, I told her that Germany has not even begun or speaking about race and racism. We haven't even started, you know. Um, we have now come to a point where it is, um, where people actually speak about race and racism in the newspaper, but um, yeah, white people feel offended when they are called white. So, um, and then oftentimes it's, for example, last year there was the Hanau shootings. Uh, nine people were killed by a Nazi. And the German government oftentimes says, you know, this was a one-time event. There is no structural, like institutional um, yeah, pattern. So as you said that racism is not a conversation, as the running community here kind of like came out to support Ahmad Arbery, how did you receive this news in Berlin? And was the running community as motivated to protest the murder and how to, I guess, reassess how running is not the same for everyone. Yeah, um, because Daniel and I have such close ties to our friends in New York and our friends in the US. I mean, Daniel's family is still in the US. It was only him who moved to Berlin. Um, we learned about um, Amod's um, murder and um, immediately started to gather our team and immediately started to speak to our team members because in our team, we also have um, US citizens, you know? We, we also have like um, um, people who were born and raised in the US and um, we try to mobilize and we try to also hold space for them. Uh, we also have black people in our team. So it, yeah, of course, this is like, you know, this is what we do for one another. Um, and with um, the larger Berlin or the larger Germany running community, um, there was nothing, you know, all these other white teams or white male led teams, there was nothing. Um, no solidarity, no, yeah, raising awareness, um, yeah. Is it still like that now, a year later? Well, I think after last year's global uprisings against systemic racism, we kind of decided to um, keep a healthy distance to um, people. 
to also protect ourselves, to protect our own people, as well as, you know, not get into um, the emotional labor it takes to educate other people. Yeah. It's interesting. When you were talking about um, the roadblocks that were set up for you in your grade school education, you mentioned that a lot of maybe administrators or teachers were saying you cannot do this, but then you also mentioned that you had some teachers, I think, who empowered you. So what I'm wondering is if there's a parallel anywhere here or if you've seen it where you may know some people in these groups that reject the discussion in the running groups that reject the discussion around systemic racism, but maybe you know someone like one person in a group where you have a friend who said, maybe there's something we can do about it. Or um, do you think like, do you have any interaction with those groups whatsoever? Or is it a total separation because you're just completely at odds with how, um, you know, this, these discuss discussions should take place? Yeah, I mean, you know, we go through phases. I think it is um, also on a personal level. I think um, after last year, um, it is totally okay to remove yourself from, you know, let's say toxic relationships or like um, relationships that don't serve you or who, you know, from people who are not listening. Um, and then you go through phases where um, you come together again, right? Mm -hmm. But um, so, yes, we are in touch with, um, you know, um, individual friends here and there and uh, running groups here and there. Um, to them, it is just not, you know, on top of their mind. And to me, it is top of my mind because this is who I am every day, 24-7, right? I'm a woman of color, 24-7. I'm, I'm all of these intersections, 24-7. So this is not something where I can, you know, like, this is trendy. Let's now talk about it. And then it's not trendy anymore. And then people are like, okay, let's move on and speak about climate change. And I'm just like, okay, so how can we speak about climate change while also considering social justice? Because, you know, like, how are we trying to, like, create a more inclusive, um, yeah, togetherness in this world, really? Yeah, and I remember... Um... I was in Berlin 2019 for the, the marathon. And you and Daniel, your group, um, you hosted a large group of people that came from all over the world for the, for the shakeout run, uh, which was great. You know, we got to see uh, how the marathon would end, you know, run along, like um, get to like the, 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 the gate and you and Daniel had only started your group like in 2018. So why did you want to host all this international people in Berlin, given what you guys had already experienced about the community not being so into being diverse? I mean, first of all, we were like, all our friends from New York are coming. Of course, we're going to throw a massive party, you know, like, how can we not, you know? And then on, I mean, yeah, as basic as that, you know, like, of course, we want to show our friends around and just like have a good time. And um, everyone's super excited. It's the fastest race. It's the fastest marathon course. Um, people are coming here to like PR 
uh, you know, and um, yeah, and then, you know, some of the other running crews, um, they were like, you know, they felt a type of way um, as taking up the space and uh, trying to organize something ourselves. Um, but at the end of the day, nobody owns the community, you know, and um, yeah, it's good to remind one another from time to time that all of this is bigger than us individuals and our egos. Have any collaborations after that happened either with businesses or any other groups, not necessarily for Berlin, but like maybe other people that came from somewhere else, then you say, yeah, we can definitely collaborate. Has that happened? And if not, is that a disappointment? I think, yes. Um, I think slowly people are becoming somewhat aware. Um, and also, I mean, you know, I don't want to speak for Daniel, but um, we both as co-founders, I would um, say that we try to navigate different spaces um, where we can, you know, um, come into business partnerships and then try to use our privileges and resources to um, empower the full team, you know, and to, um, yeah, share resources to create jobs, create opportunities and so on and so forth. Do you, do you, do you guys feel that um, maybe your background in marketing has also enabled you to create a larger conversation? Mm, what do you mean and um, what kind of larger conversation? Um, I think that you guys have been pretty successful. I, I you know, I've followed Daniel and I just think that, um, you know, it's great what you guys are doing. And I think that it's, it's, you know, creating this like bigger awareness in Berlin. So I felt like, you know, did you feel like your profession also helped you um, organize that better? Mm hmm. I mean, of course, like our time in New York um, has definitely um, shaped who, who we have become, you know, you know, and who we are becoming. And um, we definitely have, still have, but trying to unlearn, um, still have a hustler's mind, um, but trying to unlearn the capitalistic, um, you know, notions and st structures that um, society is trying to um, put upon us. What do you mean by that? What do I mean by that? <laughs> um, so I think Daniel and I, or well, I want to speak for myself. Um, I came to Berlin and was, and I guess I am still a workaholic, you know, so, um, and then having the background, um, with my profession, having worked in um, yeah, sales and marketing, as Jamie mentioned, um, has definitely helped um, me and my team in terms of strategy, in terms of like how we have grown and so on and so forth. But also unlearning the capitalistic mindset is also, um, yeah, how do we um, move forward with um, activism? while also prioritizing rest, you know, and um, seeing joy and rest also as resistance, you know, where 
um, it's very easy to burn out, um, especially in New York. And um, yeah, and in activism too, you know, there's like a lot of um, unpaid work. You do a lot of community work and it's so easy to, to burn out. But that is what white supremacy does with you. <laughs> and you don't want to burn out because we need you. We need you today and we need you in 10 years too. So... <laughs> Well, they say um, if you enjoy what you do, isn't it didn't work anymore, <laughs> right? I yeah. guess that's the anti-capitalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think we um, all can be more mindful, you know, and in how we and um, how we work and how we live, and and um, especially during a pandem pandemic where it's getting blurry between you know, everyone's in home office and everyone's working from home. And then it's easy to work on a Saturday <laughs> or a Sunday. Um, yeah. So um, I want to go to a post you wrote two years on your blog, almost two years from this recording to the day. And you, it, it included this line where you wrote, I haven't shared this, but I'm sharing it with you today throughout the past five months, pointing out white supremacy and the homogenous communities, uh, companies, communities, curriculums, or even starting a conversation around race or diversity here, I was called racist more than once. And you talk about like how uncomfortable it makes people. We've talked about this a little bit, but I was really intrigued by that post because for the first way you introduced it, the way you said, I haven't shared this. So um, were these conversations you were having in your head or maybe among very close friends that were stewing for a really long time and what also do you mean by um, like you went out and were called racist, like by people on the streets or by people in your community? So, yes, um, I had these conversations with friends before. Um, and, you know, as you um, saw on my blog, um, when I wrote this, I have not shared it with like, let's say the public, you know, or like with um, my um, Instagram following or my blog readers. Um, and then in terms of um, people who have called me racist, um, it, um, yeah, it was white people calling me that and they would um, try to steer it towards the direction, oh, I'm being racist against white people because I, yeah, observed something and then spoke about it, like, you know. It, it's such an American, uh, way of reacting among people, lots of white people in the U.S. are very uncomfortable when people have these conversations. Yeah, it's happening here in Germany too. You know, one conversation that has been happening, especially now here in the U.S., is as, you know, people are protesting against the anti-Asian um, acts, people are also saying, well, if we do that, then they're taking away the spotlight from, you know, crimes against, you know, other minorities like Black and Latinos. Um, do you think that there is a space where we could all collaborate that it doesn't take away from the fight against racism? Such an important question, Ines. Um, I do truly believe in solidarity and solidarity between different communities. Um, I do believe when it comes to protesting, there is a way to um, 
have different spaces and have different, uh, yeah, like to be able to voice the different experiences you've made with racism. Um, I also very much feel and see the pain from all my black friends and siblings and community members who have not um, seen or felt solidarity from, let's say, um, you know, modern minorities, Asian people in the past. So I fully understand that as well, you know. Uh, I was just going to ask is, have you heard pushback from the, you know, black and brown community about how they felt in the past that Asians have not been supportive of them? And in fact, that Asians have aligned themselves, you know, to, fa to fall into the model minority myth and at the same time exhibited racism against the black and brown community? Yeah, I mean, I have experienced it my, my, um, myself, like um, a couple of years ago, I had um, um, a black boyfriend. So my ex-boyfriend is black. And um, when I came back home and, um, you know, I went to the Vietnamese community New Year's and um, here and here I'm speaking about, you know, not the leftist progressive Asian bubble. Here I'm speaking about like family members, like community members, and they were all bullying me for having um, a black boyfriend or, and having black friends. And um, this is why I, um, I feel so, not feel, this is, it's just the right thing to do, you know, um, to support and empower, um, my black friends and um, the black community, be it in the US, be it in Germany, be it on a global scale. You mentioned this a couple of times that you learned the term model minority, but it wasn't a term that you grew up with. So when did when you heard that and how did you interpret it? And now as an adult and how do you, I guess, find ways to show people that that is not a box that anybody should be put into, like even for your own life? Wow, that is such a, <laughs> I think they're like such a layered question. Um, I think when I first heard it in Germany, let's say I was 16, 17, I didn't, you know, I was like, whatever. Um, I didn't think of it as much. And then um, when I would also, I also wanted to say that I was very fortunate that um, my black and brown friends in the US, in New York, um, educated me, you know, and I have unlearned a lot of things. And um, so, and now also being, you know, in academic spaces, and when we speak about model minority, um, of course, I'm thinking of like all my Asian brothers and sisters who um, support a white supremacist um, thinking or ideal or, you know, who change their names to be white, who want to be white, who, who marry white people, who surround themselves with white, you know, white proximity, white privilege. And um, it's, you know, and I take that also as a responsibility, like, how do I how do I educate my own people, you know? Um, 
So this is what I think of modern minority today. But it's not only the Asian people, it's also like different communities here. I call it a myth um, sometimes yeah. because I've, I feel that the model minority myth has been created as a sentiment in order to um, pit other minorities against each other. Because um, I feel that <clears throat> there are certain groups that are playing into, I think, Asian culture, um, where I think we tend to value success and we value um, certain things over others. So that's what they're playing into that uh, sub subculture stereotype. At the same time, have you ever heard of the term the bamboo ceiling? It's something that um, I think in America we felt is that we'll play along with the model minority myth and we'll get into these white spaces, but they'll still create an invisible ceiling for us, which we will never be in a leadership position because they feel that we're not strong enough, you know, to be vocal, to be in a leadership position. So they've created a bamboo ceiling for us. So I think it felt, I felt that friend who entered that competition, she experienced that, that, you know, she was allowed to enter, but they created a bamboo ceiling by not um, judging her work objectively based on its merit. There's a lot of different ways we could go here, but I do have um, a question that about, um, uh, about, who you looked up to this kind of goes back to the first point if anyone in the asian running community as you got more and more into running like was there anyone in your family or friends or did you feel like always you were the first asian person to be running in your space that is also a great question <laughs> because I didn't grow up with um, Asian role models other than my parents, you know. Um, I also happened to be in our own uh, Vietnamese community in the town I grew up in. We were like 10 Vietnamese families. And I also happened to be the oldest uh, from all the, <laughs> all the other families. So mm -hmm. I was the first to graduate from high school. I was the first to uh, graduate from university. I was the first to go study abroad. Um, so. I felt like there was a certain weight on my shoulders um, to perform and deliver and to represent. Um, and in terms of like the running community, um, I mean, when I was in New York, there were, maybe Jamie can answer to this as well, but I didn't see as many like Asian leaders or leadership um, or people who started their own clubs you know um you're right like I, this was yeah two years ago three years ago I, I actually looked at you as a leader when you started to um get involved with district vision and i saw you at the meditation events so it's crazy that i saw you as a leader because here you are in these um really cool spaces and kind of adjacently leading events now you are you're leading um the group with daniel you're also part of the global women run collective you're also part of the um i'm trying to find what was it in like um 
WOC forward. So tell me about what is it that you want your presence to give to the running community in regards to not only women representation, but also Asian representation. I would love for girls and women to start their own projects, be their own businesses, being their own, you know, become your own boss, become your own leader, um, um, start your own club, start your own book club, start your own, I don't know, dinner gatherings. Um, yeah, empower yourselves, empower one another um, in terms of Asian uh, communities and Asian representation. You know, we are here, we are loud, we are not going anywhere and we do have a voice. Um, we are not like, um, you know, we, we, we're not like dismissive. We're not like, um, yeah, what Jamie also uh, had mentioned, we're not the model minority myth, you know. Um, and, and what I loved seeing with last year, like, yes, um, it is very unfortunate to see all this hate and all the racist attacks and the violence and the murders against Asian people on a global scale. But um, I loved seeing more and more Asian people, be it in the Asian German diaspora, getting active, becoming active, becoming politically aware, you know, like being like, okay, we can't be silent anymore. Like, let's educate ourselves and like, let's educate one another, you know, and um, yeah. So um, I also loved um, that was like that kind of energy, you know, that um, made people um, stand up and speak up. Well, I still look at you as a leader. Um, I noticed that you are taking part in a half marathon with Nike. Uh, and you're, you're training a group of women for the Project Fearless Half Marathon, a virtual half marathon from April 10th to 11th. Can you tell us about the collaboration with Nike and why a woman-only group? Um, yeah, so... Um, yeah, we have a collaboration with Nike Berlin and we are training um, yeah, women to run their first half marathon and um, women because, I mean, if Daniel wasn't there, I would have started a club myself and I would have probably have done like a women's only running club. So we have been, an, um, we have been having an ongoing um, collaboration with Nike. Um, since the day we started our team, um, it also came from Daniel already having the relationship to Nike Berlin here in Germany, as well as um, me having the relationship um, from, you know, when I was back in New York. And um, so Nike has been, um, yeah, a supportive organization here um, to our running club here. And um, why women? Yeah, it's something dear to my heart and there are not enough women um, having the tools to empower themselves, to organize and um, yeah. And some of them are running their very first 10K and their very first half marathon. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yes, uh, I, I guess, um, but why women's only? I guess, you know, why was it important to make it um, surrounding around women, I guess? Mm. I mean, if you look around, it's, um, 
and if you look at mainstream running or mainstream sports, it's um, still male dominated and, you know, just creating your own space for you to feel safe and for you to be, feel seen and heard and um, where we can also become active and empowered. And back in the day when I started running, I was like, wow, this is a superpower nobody has told me about. Like, you know, like being able to like have a relationship with your own body where it's not like, you know, you look at a magazine and you feel shitty because you're not like this fit or this thin or this whatever, but you have like suddenly through running, I had my, I had agency over my own body. I had a relationship with my body and I was like, wow, I can do things. I can run a marathon. You know, I feel like a superwoman. And um, this kind of magic tool or, yeah, you know, it's like also like why are boys from a very young age being supported playing sports and why are these resources not given to women as well? You know, like you learn about team building, you, you learn about leadership. Like there are so many, there are so many social skills you can learn from playing sports. And even as an adult, I want to pass, yeah, I want to pass on this superpower to all my, all my girlfriends, all my friends. <laughs> I wanted to ask, like, how were you guys able to get into this relationship with Nike, given that Adidas is the big brand in, um, in Germany? Uh, how, did, how did the pitch go towards saying, Daniel and I are creating this group, and this is why you should get involved? Did you go to anybody else or was that just something that happened organically because you already knew uh, people in Nike, New York? It happened very organically. Yeah. Um, Daniel met um, a friend here in Berlin and who happened to work at Nike and um, they became close friends. So when Daniel um, yeah, wanted to start a running group with me, um, it was very easy to... Um, yeah, make that connection. And I ask because like I, and I mean, Nike keeps coming up because again, like I have my own association and then like a lot of people that I run with, that's who, you know, they've also run with. So like, I'm not using them as like the, the bad example is just the example of like, how do people, you know, when you go in to pitch your idea about why this large corporation should partner with you, just to, just to tell people who haven't had a connection to like Nike or Adidas or Puma or, or Tracksmith, like how, how does the pitch happen in anything that, even though uh, Daniel had this relationship, any advice that you can give to someone who might be thinking about reaching out to collaborate, if you can share anything? I'm just thinking. <laughs> So this is more on a um, business strategy side, right? Like asking... right, because you also, I mean, to ask, like you also, when you were in New York, you work for this district vision. So you also have that marketing background and working in sports. Uh, so just, yeah, just wondering like, what advice would you give to someone who has their own, whether it's like running, swimming, or, you know, whatever other activity, what advice would you give to them as they try to collaborate with a brand to make, you know, to just make their presence mm. wider to the larger public yeah. and how do you find 
who is the right person to align with, with your mission. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it is so corny to say, but be your most authentic self. Um, secondly, I would say reach out to me. <laughs> like, I can, I'm more than happy to like connect you to people as well. And um, three, do not do unpaid work. <laughs> and uh, yeah, don't do things for just exposure, you know. And um, I would say if you have your own running club right now, it is the best time. Um, and these companies should be reaching out to you. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think what's valuable is, um, you know, these companies, they need you. So it's not that you need them, you know, um, like I fully understand, like these companies give you an amazing platform and can give you um, certain resources. But at the end of the day, um, they, people working at these companies, they have a monthly paycheck. You know, these people working at these companies, um, they want to, yeah, they want to improve their products. So they need you. They need you as leaders, as um, community organizers, as run crew leaders. So, um, yeah, um, please don't do unpaid work. So now we have reached the segment of the show where we do the hot mic. Where I think this, our conversation has prepared you well to be able to just speak uninterrupted for two minutes about anything. Uh, it's your platform. You can dole out advice or you can make a big statement or a grand gesture. Maybe advice on how to get paid for work. <laughs> And I'll keep time. You can start whenever you want. Okay, let me think first <laughs> before I start. Um, what would be most interesting to you? I'm like, I can speak to so many things. It's not really to us, it's to you. What do you want to leave the, the listeners with? Uh, what do you want? If you go back a year from now and listen to this, like, what do you want to say to your, you know, your old self? You know, like grandchildren. <laughs> it's pretty much like, it's, it's an open mic. It's kind of like, like, you know, that you have to go from the start to the finish. You can run at any pace. You can walk at any pace. It's anything, anything you want. Okay. Sure, I don't, I'm just gonna start speaking on something. Have you guys noticed that this is when people get nervous? <laughs> I don't know what to like. <laughs> I don't know what to say. But you haven't. <laughs> or talk about the realization over the past few years. I don't know. So whenever there's you also, there, Nathan, no. <laughs> there's also no law on our 
show mm. that you have to have a hot mic, right? <laughs> Most of our guests start by they're just like singing show tunes or something, and then what are they doing? <laughs> show tunes? What are the show tunes? Uh, it's such an American like Broadway shows, br like cheesy Broadway musicals. <laughs> uh, tell me, what what does that mean? What are show tunes? That's like Nathan. This is where you sing for her. I'm basically tone deaf. My dog will howl if I sing. <laughs> so this is like where like a song comes in, like is, like show tunes. No, I'm seriously. I have like a, a in my notepad. It says English vocabulary. <laughs> so yeah, it's like like you go to a Broadway musical, and you hear the opening number, and it's some like you know cheesy, cheesy song. And if you want to just, you know, kill time awkwardly, you're just singing mm. show tunes. I can't <laughs> sing. I know, I'm just kidding. You know, we don't, we don't have to do a hot mic. Like, it's not as if you haven't basically just given us, our listeners, 75 minutes of hot mic material. Mm. But we also haven't not done it before, so... Jamie, what would you be most interested in? Oh, boy. Um, <clears throat> I mean, there's so many issues that we could talk about. We could talk about women representation. I think when you talked about Asian leadership, uh, when, when Nathan, I think, asked you a question about Asian women leaders, it hit me, too, because I just realized I never saw people that look like us in certain mm. places. And then it just made me feel a certain way, realizing what have I done, you know, to, mm -hmm. to seek out that, where do we see that? Or how do we encourage people who look like us to be leaders, mm -hmm. right? I know I never want to be a leader. I like to sit behind the scenes. But then how did that make me look at myself? Am I good mm -hmm. enough? Will I ever be accepted? You know, mm. that was one thing you talked about. And then I think you talked about capitalism. And I never thought about, <clears throat> I never thought about how we've fallen into this trap to believe that we are doing something for a greater good. And if we do the same thing, we'll get money too, right? So we're making other people uh, wealthier, or rather, we're doing the work of others. And that's how capitalism, I think, works. I don't know. You could mm. talk about your experience learning about how to break into something that you feel passionate about and how to turn it into a bigger conversation. Mm. And uh, I mean, I'm still so trying many to things. figure it out too. And what running has done, you know, for us, mm. uh, I believe you, you talked once about your own body image a long time mm. ago and have you reconciled with that yet? You know, It's just how running has made me look at myself kind of differently. Mm. I used to, <clears throat> I used to never question how I looked or felt, but nowadays when I look at images of runners, it makes me kind of feel self-conscious. Mm. And then when I'm, when people talk, you mentioned PRs, PRs really got, PRs really get me sometimes. And I think it's the inner competitive side in me. Mm. So, and I, I never feel like I'm good enough because I'm not hitting certain numbers. There's so many things you could talk about. <laughs> Can I do a hot mic with Jamie and we speak about the Asian experience? How about oh. that, Jamie? Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Yes, yes absolutely. Uh, because I really, I really felt like 
I was like so close to tears and I was like, you're so right. Like, you know, we don't have enough. Like sometimes, like, it's so silly, but like the other day, so I have like an Asian woman writers group with two um, friends of mine. One is from, one is Korean from the US and one is uh, Chinese from Canada. And um, she, one of the friends, she was reading um, a book by um, an Asian American writer. And this person was like um, describing an Asian face and um, in, in a very negative way, you know, like we have this like flat nose and flat face. And she was complaining. She was like, why can't we Asians like speak about us and about ourselves like highly you know why can't we like empower ourselves like why are we why are there advertisements in south asia whitening creams exactly things like that why Um, why do they promote eyes eyelid surgery all the time so it you know since i was young all my female asian friends used to talk about waiting for their eyelid surgery that their parents would help them get by 16 or 18 and then we talked about having to find we wear glasses a large asian population wears glasses and i can't fit them well because glasses don't stay on my face and i think what drew me to district vision which is how we met was you guys had a line that had a nose part that can help the glasses stay on my face and Mm. it's small things that you know makes us as asians feel like we have to try to fit in because nothing is made to fit us Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Nathan, how about you do this? You start, you start with uh, four minutes, and it's uh, Jamie and I speaking about uh, Asian, <laughs> being being Asian, being an Asian runner. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Being an Asian runner is even more difficult. Yes, how do four minutes. My family. <laughs> How do we explain to, I think, um, our culture that running is not something we're going to make money off of, but it's something that we actually like to do? Yeah. Um, And then uh, my parents used to ask me, oh, are you paying to do these things? Um, Well, are you going to come in as a winner? Do you get any compensation for this? And it's just like you explain to them that this is something we want to do to feel good and to be healthy. Yeah. Even, um, I think, being Asian is so tied to capitalism because we are, you know, like Vietnamese guest workers are being like transported, moved from Vietnam to the Czech Republic, to Germany, to um, rebuild a country. And then they are being removed again, right? Um, similar to the um, Chinese um, train railroad workers, right? In the US. And yeah. so I think there's a very close tie to that. And um, even the concept of like rest and relaxation, like my parents never understood it. You know, they would be like, why are you putting on your sneakers? Why are you heading out into nature? Like, if you're you not know. making money or doing exactly. something that will lead to prosperity, then it's not worth doing. Um, yeah. So it's been something that we try to reconcile with ourselves as I think when we're emerging in a western culture where we meet people outside of our cultures that look at things differently not as a commodity um so yeah I understand what you mean we give in to that 
the capitalism worship. Yeah, yeah. And then how do we confront the West with, um, you know, and I also, it also starts with my language, right? I, I do, I want to stop saying the Vietnam War. No, it was the American war in Vietnam. It was the American war in Korea. Like, of course we are then in the US. Of course, Koreans are in the US. Of course, Vietnamese people are in the US. You bombed our country. Like, there's nothing. You know, of course, my parents are forced to leave. Of course, our grandparents were forced to leave. Like, like, and how do we translate that to, you know, Syrian refugees today and, um, you know, refugees overall today? Well, it was what Ines says about citizenship. You know, that's a different conversation. And I said, citizenship yeah. is like a club. You know, you want to be part of it. And so what do Asians do? We we want to be part of something so um how do we you know talk about those conversations that yes there are asians that i think are racist adjacent or they align yeah. with the same concepts that create oppression against other minorities like yeah. i mean there's a politician right now who's running for um new york city's mayor and he's had controversies saying that um you know, if we're, uh, he, he just, his statements have not been in a line with us trying to get away from the stereotype. So a lot of us feel like there are Asian leaders that maybe are not addressing some past historical racism that we have committed ourselves because mm. we use it to our advantage. I get, I get, I get mad about that too. And mm. then what about the assumption that all Asians are Chinese, or mm. we are not a monolith. You know, don't look at me and say, how do you feel about what China's doing about that? And I say, I don't really know. I'm not from there. My family's not even from there. I'm, Malaysia. mm. I'm Malaysian. Yeah, yeah. You know, my, my mom wasn't even born in China. She doesn't know anybody in China, but they assume that we're all from China. So then when this pandemic happened, you know, they would just label us as one group. Mm. Yeah, they even caught me here in Germany out on the on a vast uh, on a massive um, like supermarket, you know, like um, shopping street. Um, people called, um, people shouted COVID and Corona at me. They did that to me too a lot in March. I would just take the subway, and kids would kind of push me into a corner and tell me I'm a virus and I have to stay there. So but when I would tell people this happened last year, they would say, oh, they're just being kids. Mm. And then I just thought, well, then if nobody corrects these kids, what kind of adults will they become? Yeah. Yeah. I really loved reading Minor Feelings by Katie Park Hong. Have you read that yet? No, but I will definitely give it a read. Yeah. One of her lines, she said that um, people like to say um, Asians are white adjacent. And she responded, well, she thinks, or, you know, in one of these lines, it says Asians are adjacent to disappear. Um, and yeah, it really made me think of how our experiences have always been forced to be invisible, you know, and we were not able to like speak and share and stand up. Yeah, it's funny. I just texted the group in the middle of our conversation that sometimes I feel like we're invisible. 
but maybe this is the turning point for us. I mean, this year we've had, um, last year Parasite won the Oscars, and this year Minari is being shown, um, that there's a director, she's Chinese, um, she just, you know, won a Golden Globe, I think, for Best Director. So I think maybe it takes a little bit more conversations. Yeah, and I hope too that those people, you know, um, that people who are getting, um, or Asian people who are getting acknowledged for their work, that they will also use their privileges to educate um, their own communities, our communities, and um, do that in solidarity with the Black community, with the Latinx community, and so on and so forth. Definitely agree. I mean, there's so many, I think, stereotypes about us. And I think it's time for our generation to really break away from those stereotypes. And I think it's, we have to be accepted amongst our own kind too, that it's okay for us to break out of that. <laughs> I hope everyone listening here feels seen, feels loved. Um, I hope they, um, take Sundays off <laughs> and um, I hope people take care of themselves and um, yeah Agreed. work less work less <laughs> I, I just wish everybody saw themselves and appreciated themselves for what they have you know for like what we look like mm. we're like we're okay mm. yeah Nathan, what does the time say? <laughs> it's such a um, byproduct of the capitalist system to count everything. So seriously. Um, so when the timer hit zero after four, naturally I started the stopwatch. And... Oh, you restarted again? That was eight minutes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Inez has a lot of editing. <laughs> uh, Inez has two parts. No, I, I actually, I, I appreciate that, that that moment happened. And I think this is what the beauty of having a cast that is diverse, that we are able to have conversations in a, in a deeper way that, you know, that you were you wanted to share this with Jamie because you might have had share experiences, you know, what it's like to be, you know, a woman of Asian descent in the US and in Germany. So I think it was great. And I think this also plays to my idea of why I wanted the cast to be diverse, to be able to have also this, that we, you know, things that not to say that you and I or you and Nathan couldn't have related, but I think it also helps to see someone who will have, be able to have like a deeper connection and bring conversations to Nathan and myself that we would have never had on our own. And I think that's, so thank you for bringing that to us today. I think it was interesting that she's overseas, but yet we share the same common experiences in two different countries. Yeah, I also, I mean, now that we have acquainted ourselves to Zoom, I also love using Zoom as like, you know, 
okay, this is how I spent my free time, Zoom parties. <laughs> uh, no, I also loved um, you all being um, so kind and generous um, with your time and questions. And I loved, um, yeah, just sharing the hot mic with Jamie and um, also, you know, providing the safer space between all of us to, um, for you to share your thoughts and feelings. Um, on what has been going on. Um, yeah. We should start an international Asians group or something, Asian runners. <laughs> this has been really wonderful. Our first international guest, um, Huen, Timin Huen. Thank you for coming on and despite the time difference and um, giving us such an insight into what your experience has been like um, and you've set such a high standard for our show to bring on um, any you know international guest, but in some way you've just continued on with our mission and helped us expand. So this has been really wonderful opportunity and conversation. Um, I want to thank obviously Jamie and Inez, my co-hosts, Inez, our producer. And of course, all the listeners who have come with us, we'll see you next time on the next episode of Let's Get Uncomfortable. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Uncomfortable. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us on the App Store and follow us on Spotify.